Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame, and I am your host. I am very excited to bring to you Andre Roberts today to our podcast. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Andre. We felt that it was a really important topic. He talks about growing up as a black man in America. We felt that with everything that is going on in the world today, that it was really important to have a guest on here that could speak to, you know, what's going on and 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 give a voice that I certainly can't give and and a, a narrative that I can't give. So I asked him questions, and some I'm sure will are awkward, and hopefully they stand the test of time. And you know, I just felt that having this open dialogue was really great. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Andre before we roll into his incredible interview. We really spent a lot of time talking about the topics at hand as opposed to his life story, although they worked into his life story. But I want to just give you a little bit of background. So for starters, Andre uh, is a personal trainer and tennis instructor currently living in Beverly Hills. He was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and raised in a single parent household with his two siblings. Andre took his first drink at five years old, He lived with his grandmother and her late husband. He grabbed a glass of scotch with ice and chugged it. He got happy, danced around, and then passed out, remembers vomiting in his car and then people having to carry him out. The next day, he remembered the fun part of it, like we all do. Everyone was laughing at him, and the alcohol slowly took effect before he was inebriated. He was the center of attention in a positive way. His father was a drug dealer and a pimp in his day, but he also held a steady job. He met his father at five and a half years old because his father had been shot. he had had a near-death experience and wanted to meet his son. In fact, the woman who shot him was his dad's main prostitute. She ended up being the one that actually nursed him back to health and ended up being like a second mom to Andre. Andre remembers having to go to a lot of new schools. He transitioned to various high schools, including being bust to a quote-unquote white school where he was one of only a handful of black children. Andre talks a lot about his witnessing of segregation in Milwaukee and things that he saw growing up. At age 11, he marched with his friends and family to protest the deaths of several black men who were killed by police. As you'll hear, this was not an uncommon thing to happen. In fact, Andre tells us about several experiences with people he knew and also his own experiences with the police and the fear that lived in everyone in their neighborhood. By 18 years old, Andre was into freebasing cocaine, but the fact that he played tennis set him apart. It brought him into other neighborhoods and with many men that took him under their wing, and they were good to him, especially in the tennis community. There was a lot of racism in his childhood growing up. One of the most powerful stories that Andre shares with us is his experience with a Nazi in treatment. While Andre is getting sober, a young man in Andre's bunk room was a proclaimed Nazi, and the story of how they kindled a friendship is something that you cannot miss. Andre believes that everybody has their own lane that they need to find in this world, their own platform, no matter how big or small, even if it's behind the scenes. He believes that people need to find it and use it but people shouldn't be condemned for the lane they choose. Andre is about to celebrate having eight years of sobriety and is engaged to a beautiful woman, Patty, who inspires him every single day. 
This discussion was so necessary, so beautiful. Andre is such an amazing storyteller and just a lovely human being. And I am so grateful for his time and so happy that you get to hear his story and get to hear a little bit of what it's like from someone who really not only understands history, the history of America and the history of being a black man in America, but also can share with you personal stories from his family about what that means. It put a lot of things into perspective for me, and I hope it does the same for you. So without further ado, I give you Andre Roberts. Okay, so first of all, Andre, you were born in Milwaukee. Yes, I am a product of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Incidentally, Milwaukee, Wisconsin is one of the most segregated cities in the United States. I believe when I lived there, it was the most segregated city in the United States at that Why? time. Why? In the 80s and 90s. There's about five or six bridges, they call them uh, viaducts, that separate the north and the south side of Milwaukee. Okay. And for the most part, whites lived on the south side and blacks lived on the north side. Okay. Uh, present day, there's a lot of uh, Mexicans that live on the south side and more blacks that live on the south side. But back then in the 70s and 80s, it was like that. It's very segregated. Very segregated. As a matter of fact, even the, um, the white community uh, is segregated. There's an Italian sector. There's, right, right. Polish, there's Irish. Yeah. Right. Right. By the, by the, okay. And, and so you grew up in a single parent household, one of three children, and you lived on the North side. What was the awareness of black, you know, black people on the North side and and white people on the South? Was, were you aware of it or did it ever like, did that thought ever cross your mind? Like, why is that? Or was it just like, this is how it is? This is how it is. And like during the civil rights movement in the sixties, those viaducts in Milwaukee were patrolled by National Guard. And so, like, whites that wanted to get to the north side and blacks that wanted to get to the south side had to have uh, some type of identification that they were going over there to work. There was lots of civil rights protests in Milwaukee. A lot of people don't hear about Milwaukee as it relates to civil rights protests, but Father Michael Gropi, who was this white Roman Catholic priest, uh, was on the forefront of a lot of the marches. Back in the day, you had the Black Panther Party that was known in Chicago, but it was also prolific in uh, Milwaukee because, and also Malcolm X spent a lot of time in Milwaukee. There's a huge uh, civil rights, uh, a lot of civil rights history. There's a lot of civil rights history in in Milwaukee, and there's a lot of history of bad policing in Milwaukee. There's a history of a lot of people uh, coming together and and for the common good of all in Milwaukee as well. So to your original question, was I aware of it? Uh, yes. When I was five years old, I remember, I believe his name was Ernest Lacey. He was a guy that was uh, killed in police custody. One of like many people that pop in my, my mind at this present moment. And so I remember as a five-year-old boy with my six and a half-year-old brother and my, gra- my grandmother, my sister, who was uh, four years un- under me, basically a year old, uh, walking and picketing with all these people with police riot gear lining the streets. Now, they actually lined the entire 
the entire route of wherever people were marching. There was an officer from the beginning to the end on both sides of the street, sides of the streets, holding a billy club in the front with their riot shields down and like at the ready. Like, I mean, literally from beginning so to end. You're, you're like, you know, you're, you're at their waist. That must've been terrifying. Yes. But I was, for some reason, I was aware of slightly aware of what was happening. My mother was into activism during that time. My mother was also in uh, now the national organization of women was a huge organization back then. And I remember her having this, this book that was talking about their, the, their organization. And so she took, she was also in the arts. And so she took part in a lot of things like that. And she was very conscious of what was happening in the community, in, in the state and in the country and the world as a whole back then. You know? I have a question about that. So that's really interesting. And, and, you know, that she was involved in those things and particularly the women piece. How did that, so your dad, you met your father for the first time when you were five and a half, right? Correct. And your dad was a, a drug dealer and a pimp. Correct. How did it work? How did your mother, did she get involved with now because of her experiences with, with you know, women being uh, objectified and, and used or like, because, you know, I, I'm assuming he didn't start being a pimp when you were five. <laughs> I, to answer that question, I don't know the answer to that question. But what I do know is that we grew up very poor on welfare. And my, and my mother actually went back to school when she was 28. She had me when she was 18. She went back to school when she was 28. She got a GED. She never graduated from high school. She actually had my older brother when she was in a girl's home at 16. And so my grandmother raised her, my brother, for a minute. And so, and then she went on to go to Milwaukee um, Technical College. And then she went and got a bachelor's degree. And then she went on to get a master's degree in social work. So during that time period, I imagine that she got involved in the student union. Got it. Okay. So became okay. more aware of what was happening, of current issues. I know that she also was a product of the 60s. And she probably was r- running rampant in the streets and not really focusing Got on it. those things. But okay, that, all that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, so she, she she was young, and then she went and got an education and and kind of got involved. Okay, that that totally makes sense to me. So you ha- you're the middle child, correct? In the middle child. Okay, and. I have a bunch of questions. You know, everything that's going on right now is, you know, so pertinent and and really amazing that you have the experiences that you've had in terms of protesting and and as a five-year-old boy. And we're still, I mean, protesting police brutality, right? And we're still having the conversation. And and not only are we having, I mean, for conversation is is uh <laughs> is really putting it lightly. We're we're still having this huge, you know, these protests. And I, I do have questions about that. I want to get a little bit into your background to kind of put some, you know, context around your experience. One of the things I, I wondered regarding growing up as a person of color is, did you feel as a kid in Milwaukee with the segregation, walking those streets as a five-year-old boy, I'm assuming all the police officers were white. Did you feel like the white, did you feel like white people were somehow more powerful, better? Did you feel like they, they, were you like, oh, wh- that that's at least what you were being told by, by, with the symbology of it? Right. So I'll take you all the way back to 
Brown versus the, the Board of Education. Board of Education. Yep. Okay, that was enacted in the 60s. And it wasn't implemented in Wisconsin until the 70s. So me as a second grader, I got transferred from this school in the hood to this school called Maple Tree out in the boondocks. I got bust, me and about nine to 11 other kids, me and my, my older brother included. And so I saw the disparity in how even the education process was. Oh, yeah. I excelled. Was this a white school, quote unquote? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, okay, okay. There was one black kid named Mark Lawrence that went to school there that was raised in that area. Okay. He and I became close and competitive in all the sports. But so going back, I thought, and, and, and in relation to the police, I always felt not friends with law enforcement. Right, right, right. <laughs> it was more right. of a, a overseer Ad, type adversari- of a, adversarial. adversarial. Even as a child, I was, yeah. you know, I was taught to like shy away from the police and, okay. you know, really, and not really try to communicate with them. And I mean, they, it wasn't like they would try to communicate with us. You know what I mean? Were you taught that by your mom or were you taught that by like, okay. She said, you need to not talk to the police. Yes. Yes. Uh, There was a great fear from the police department because there was always incidences of brutality that were known. Like I, I, I grew up in the inner city of Milwaukee and I can rattle off names right now of people that got killed. I can, if I think long enough, I can rattle off names of people that I've seen in, in, in casts and beaten faces that happened. This morning, I called my dad and I told him about this experience I was about to have with you all. And he said, wow. He said, you know what happened to me back in, I don't know what year. He said it was in the 70s. Uh, he and uh, his nephew, uh, not his nephew, but his late girlfriend's uh, nephew, who was like a nephew to him, Joe got pulled over by the cops and he said something that was too smart for the cops to accept. And they let Joe go. Joe was white, incidentally. And they took my dad around the corner and beat him senseless. And he told me that this morning. And he said, uh, I remember screaming out for my mother in those moments because I thought that they were going to kill me. And I just learned this today from my dad because of you all reaching out to me and us having this experience today. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, it, it, I can't imagine how powerless it one would feel in, and growing up with that. And, you know, because I am not a person of color, I hear all the different opinions, right? Like I hear all the different things that people say. And what I think is interesting and what I hear from my friends of color is they say, they're saying we're like, I hear people who are white saying, here's how many people were killed. Here's how many black people were killed by officers. Here's how many white people were killed by officers. And they show data. Right. And, and then I hear from my, my black friends and my friends of color. Yeah. That's the data that's actually document. No, correct. <laughs> like, well, correct. like, like Ashley, correct. like, cause I say like, what is this? Why, why, what do you think of this? You know, I, I want to have conversation. I want to be more informed. I want to do better. I want to, you know, whatever. And, and they're like, yeah, of course that's the data. That's, you know, those are the situations where they had to report it. I had to report it. If you go back in American history and look at where the police originated from, because remember, Long ago, there were sheriffs. There was no such thing as a police department or police officers. There were sheriffs and there were deputies. Police de- policing and police departments originated from 
these ragtag groups that were to keep slaves and freed slaves in line. So these people came out, they were in essence militias that were to keep the enslaved and formerly enslaved freed blacks in fear and in their place. Somewhere along the line, they became police forces, right? They became deputized. And all of a sudden they started enacting laws to they started enacting laws for them to abide by and people to abide by. You'll find in this country that laws have been enacted incrementally to, in essence, hold people back in this country. Not just pe- people of color, poor people, period. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yeah. When I was arrested, the, uh, the, you know, the joke, you know, funny, not funny kind of joke was that, you know, I would go into these courtrooms and it was filled and, you know, where I come, where I was living, it's Hispanic, you know, filled with, you know, young Hispanic kids, boys and girls. And I was there for all these felonies. And it was like, I had a, you know, we called it the best justice money could buy. That was this. And and I walked in, I walked into there. I was in a suit. I was 16. I was in a suit. You know, I had a lawyer and every other kid in there, you know, no representation whatsoever. And it was stark. It was, it, you know, it was, and, and I, I didn't do time. And I'm, I, I, I was supposed to go to uh, CYA. I was supposed to go to California Youth Authority. And I was taken by force against, I was a ward of the state of California and I was removed from California illegally and put into a program out of state. And then they went back to the court and said, is this okay? And the court said, ah, well, I guess. So everybody else who had my scenario went to CYA. And you know what they say about CYA, it's just a criminal camp. Like they just, they just, they just produce, you know, and, and so, you know, it's everything, even my own minute experience is the justice system. I worked in the public defender's office and, you know, the justice system is, (laughs) I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to do that was justice. And what I realized was there is no justice in the justice system. That's not where you go for justice. It's just not there. Not there. Speaking about the uh, criminal justice system, it is, like you said, it's the best justice money can buy. And so when you have a public defender who has this enormous caseload, his goal and his only goal is to lower his caseload. And so what that looks like is, okay, look, this is what you're, you're here for. If you want this, I can do it. If you're not, you can go and sit for two, three months because you can't afford bail. You know what I mean? And uh, it's it, it has to do with bail. It has to do with inability to have representation. It has to do with sentencing guidelines. Incrementally, sentencing guidelines have gotten worse and worse for the most minute of things in, in this country. And it's, it's really scary. But going back to um, Milwaukee and experiences in Milwaukee, I have a friend, also a guy named Daniel Bell. Uh, I remember he was autistic and the cops stopped him on the street one day. And for whatever reason, he ended up handcuffed and in a paddy wagon and unsecured in the back of this big, huge box of a truck. Uh, They would uh, sometimes get people inside of these things and take them for what's called a ride. And so they would be not secured in the back of these big trucks 
and they'd be making these sharp rights and lefts and sudden stops. And he died in the back of one of those things. That was the second march I had ever been on in my life. And I was about 12 years old then. And one of my friends, Cece, he was 17 years old across the street from where I used to live in Sherman Park. I used to play tennis there as a kid. And uh, he was uh, he was a bad seed and he had stolen a car. He had broke the law and he had got into this chase and he decided he was going to pull over over by the park where everybody was around. And he got into a scuffle with a police officer. He was trying to get away. And the suddenly the police officer stepped away from him and yelled gun. CC did not have he was not armed. And they shot that boy, the 17-year-old boy, 17 times, 17 times. And I remember that his mother talking about the fact that her son had, like, bullets in his ankles and elbow. You know what I mean? They, like, riddled him with bullets. And when all they should have done was arrest him and take him to jail for stealing a car. That just took me all the way back to when I was a teenager. When you go back to that and you think about that, you know, what did you feel like society was not seeing? Did you feel like, what, what did you want people to know that they didn't know? Or, or in, you were, I mean, you, so you played tennis, which is, I'm sure you played with a lot of, of white people in tennis and you went to, you were, you were bussed into a white school. Okay. So you had a lot of contact with, with the white suburbia. You saw up close, like, Hey, these are, some of these people are really good people. They just, they don't know what's going on. Like what, you know, like, how do they not know? Why do they like, were there times where you just wanted to come back and, and tell the white people, like, don't you know, this is going on or like, you wouldn't want this to happen to me. Or how did that change? How did those experiences change your interactions with white people on a day-to-day basis? They didn't necessarily change my interactions. I would always go to like predominantly white areas and I was always aware of my surroundings and in segregated society, which is for the most part, most of the United States, unfortunately, people are insulated from those things and people have a comfort with being insulated from it because then it doesn't unnerve one's conscious. You know, it doesn't put one in a position where they have to feel anything about it. You know, so there's some relief and comfort in that insular society. What I picked up on a lot of was that I felt like underserved communities were more disposable, it seemed to me. And like there was not this uh, communal care given to inner cities. And because of that, there was a there was there is an overtone of uh, heaviness that pervades inner cities around this country. Uh, I can go to South Central now, and I'm always struck by the almost just kind of shuffling of the feet of the general public in the inner city because everybody is in that bubble. Everybody's in that pressure cooker because that's what we call the hood, because a pressure cooker. The rules are different there. Yeah. The happenings are different there. The normal everyday stressors that twist people to bits are overlooked there. It's commonplace to be tense. So you walk around under tension all the time. It's just a question of 
what level of tension are you existing on in that day? If you're talking about an emotional perspective, if you're talking about a physical perspective, you have to almost walk around with a shield up because if the outside of this pressure cooker is adversarial to you, right. you have to react and respond as if everything around you is adversarial as well. Right. And that is something that a lot of people, you can't, it's, it's, you, it's not tangible. You can't right. touch it. You can't see it. You can right. describe There's no data. it. Yeah. There's no data. There can be no study done on this. You can only go and live it and experience it. And if you're fortunate enough to, to get out of it, you can really under, you can understand it, looking, looking at it from afar and understand it and, and describe it to people. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so, so important because, you know, we, we, we can't know what we don't know and that, you know, it doesn't mean we don't want to know. It does, you know, there's many, as you see in the streets, many people want to do better. They want to do better. They don't know how, and they don't know how. And I do feel, you know, I was, uh, I worked in the foster care system and in, um, in Monterey park at Monterey park in East LA. And I was a court appointed special court appointed special. Oh my gosh. Why can't I even think of the word? CASA. I was a CASA and advocate, sorry, court appointed special advocate. And, uh, and I had a case in, in, I had a case that I, a girl I was with for a couple of years and I would go into her neighborhood and I felt that, and I would make sure to like show, make sure my tattoos were showing <laughs> and I would make sure, you know, because what I noticed was when I, sh- the nicer clothes I showed up in, the more scared the people in the home were of me. And I was working as a, as a volunteer to advocate for my, my foster kid. I was not a court, like I was not part of the legal system, so to speak. I was there to help. And, but they were afraid of me. I was white. You know, I had a, you know, I I don't know. It wasn't a nice car, but it was a decent, what it would be considered a nice car. I, I had, and I noticed I had to change everything about the way I was walking into that situation in order for them not to completely be terrified of me because I walked in, I was like, why are they afraid of me? I, are you kidding? I'm volunteering here. Like I, I am not, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm here to help. I'm not doing anything. And, and, uh, and it was so what I noticed over time over doing it for two years was the cellular fear of my community, you know, the privileged community, whatever that looks like, the cellular fear, it didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter how much I dressed up or dressed down or the language that I use. Everybody knew where I was coming from, that I was driving into that neighborhood, that I didn't live there. And it made it so that I don't think that I was as effective as someone who really understood. I mean, we experience this in recovery, right? Where it's like, I can go up to someone, anybody who's experiencing drug addiction, alcoholism, you know, whatever. And I can say to them, like, I get it. I can get on their level because I have been, I can speak that language. It's the same thing. What I, what I found was it was the same. It was like, I, you need, we're sending in, you know, white women (laughs) into these hoods to help with these foster children to try to relate to them. And I came as close as you could get to like having some sort of experience with drugs and alcohol and living, you know, on the street and blah, 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 this stuff. And it still wasn't even, it didn't even hold a candle. And so I do see a lot of people wanting to help, but we don't, 
we don't know how. And one thing that's interesting as I was reading your background, right? And we're talking about this, like I see that tennis, when I was reading it and I saw that you played tennis, I saw it, you know, and I saw it like in the middle of my notes of your story. And I said, oh, tennis got him out. He went to that school. Tennis got him out. There's no question because that would have been the path out. And But I'm reading this, right? And I'm reading how many, you know, we talk about, I don't know if you've seen the studies on ACEs, but basically traumatic childhood experiences. We call them adverse childhood experiences really there. And you, so there's adverse childhood experiences and it talks about, there's a study that's done that, and they want to, it's um, being moved in California to be part of the, the, like when you get a physical, when you go like to be part of the questionnaire, because they found it's related to chronic disease, all sorts of things, but adverse childhood events, right? ACEs. And if you get an ACEs score of something like three or more, your, your list of, you know, likelihood of whatever, and an adverse childhood event, one is like neglect, one is sexual abuse, uh, parent using drugs, seeing a parent use drugs. I mean, uh, born in a, uh, a family where there was some sort of marital conflict, uh, violence outside. Like it was. And so I'm, all those. All those. Ex- exactly. Exactly. And so I'm looking at your, your thinking, I'm thinking of, the, you know, of the adverse childhood events, you know, score testing that that's done. And it's a, you know, it's a huge it's basically a predictor. Like you have these things and, and, and here's what happens, right? We know what happens and what happened for you. You had all of these things, you know, that, that happen. And so does, so did probably most of your neighbors and your siblings and everyone in your community probably had some, probably three or more aces, right? Because the way that the, the resources, the stress of the resources, all these different things. So what happens when you have a community? And I think this is what's hard for me as a, as a, when I worked in the public defender's office, when, when, when I look out at the situation, you have people, you have a community that has an abnormally high amount of ACEs, right? So we know that what that predicts and those ACEs also predict interaction with law enforcement, depending on what they are, right? And so that means that you are more likely to be, to commit a crime, aka be a criminal, however you want to put it. And what I found was really difficult when I worked at the public defender's office was we would get, I would get these binders to help the attorneys put together their cases. And it was all people of color. And they were, it was it was atrocious. They were doing atrocious things one after the other, after the other, after the other. And I thought to myself, how, if you are in this line of work, do you, even though the truth is that the people in the other neighborhoods just aren't being caught, right? That's what we know. How do you, how do we come to this place of removing this idea and removing this this overwhelming sense of like the people who work in law enforcement, who work in the justice, they're even, they, it may not have started that way, but now they're, that's what they're dealing with. How do we get them to change their view? If their view, right? If their binoculars are focused on something that's telling them that is their experience. Yes. Well, anything external is viewed as a threat. Your experience from going as uh, working in the foster care system to these homes, they viewed you as a threat. 
because you were external. You were external to their experience. I was talking to a friend of mine about a month and a half ago, two months ago, sober friend of mine, black friend of mine, former gang member. He's now sober. He's got his life together. We were talking about things that occurred in my hood and his hood. He's in California. He grew up in California in Van Nuys. And we suddenly ended, came up to, to the claim to the conclusion. We suddenly came to the conclusion that we and most people we know suffer from PTSD and don't even realize it because we've seen so much, so many traumatic events take place. Guns, gunshots, gunfire, stabbings, fights, people getting jumped on and beat half to death, people getting snatched out of their cars and beat up, you know, all, a lot, all the chaos that occurs in this pressure cooker. And, and so if, from the outside looking in, anything inside the pressure cooker is a threat to me. Okay. And from the view from inside the pressure cooker, anything outside the pressure cooker is a threat to me because I see how you look at me when I come out of the pressure cooker. See, now we go to the experience that Andre had when Andre was a tennis player and was fortunate enough to walk in these circles that a lot of young black kids that grew up in the hood, I would go to country clubs. We had a, a, seven, 10 guys that uh, were, were called the Badger Racket Tennis Club and we would go and play different. It was like intermill softball. They would come to Sherman Park. Sometimes we'd go there. And I remember they invited us to the American Club in um, Kohler, Wisconsin. Big, huge swank country. It was a big deal. No black people had ever been there before. Oh my gosh. And, and it, how, many, how many black, was it you and who else? It was me and eight other people. And, and so were they we all of to, color? Yes. And so, yeah. Okay, so, okay. So I grew up, so Sherman Park, which is two blocks from where I grew up, there was like middle and upper middle class businessmen, like people that work for the school board, people that work for the gas company and supervisory position, waterworks, the lead anchor, the anchor for the uh, noon uh, news, Joanne Williams, she used to play there. And a lot of college educa- educated blacks would play there. And so I was fortunate that I had these mentors at these tennis courts. I was this kid and there was these, these adults. And so I got a lot of my teeth from these people. So I got a little bit of all of them in me. You know what I mean? I watched them read newspapers in between playing tennis and talk about current events. So I, my experience in the hood as a hood, growing up in the hood was the same, but it was also different juxtaposed to those two things. And also I would venture out on my own to go and visit my wife friends too you know, and hang out with my white friends. Cause you know, back then I was involved with drugs and alcohol and I used to go and smoke pot with my buddies. You know, I was guy friend, white friends that I was comfortable with. Now, now keep in mind that like, I had a lot of experiences with racist people. Uh, I've gotten people have tried to jump or tried to jump on me. Uh, people have like, uh, beat me up while I was, my back was turned at some, uh, uh quarter barrel party. And I, you know, I wake up and my teeth are missing Things have happened to me. I've been like, I remember cops coming and like slamming me on the hood of a car. when I was like 12, 13 years old and like chicken wing me. And I was just like screaming in terror, broad daylight. And it was like, I felt so powerless and victimized, but it was something that was like, I won't say expected, but if it happened, it wasn't surprising or shocking. So when we see, when I say we, I mean, people that grew up in that environment, when we see 
George Floyd being murdered in the streets of uh, Minnesota, it's like they killed another brother. It's not like, oh, my God, do you see what they're doing to that man? And I'm like, just the only reason that that's not me is by luck. It's just luck. It's luck. The only reason that doesn't happen to LeBron James is it's just luck. And so you get this visceral response to it. Initially, I I was watching it and I was shaking my head and I just got enraged because they were making a big deal out of it as if it never happened before. And then I got upset and angry thinking about all the lives that had perished from the same knee. You know, this is not something that is not unnatural. This is not something that's not commonplace. These things happen every day, all the time. If we go back to the founding of the United States of America and we go, we take the timeline, the Europeans come here, decimate the natives. That wasn't pretty. When that happened in the books, we see stories like a lot of natives met their demise at the hands of the settlers. That's the sentence we read. We don't see the mayhem, the chaos, the bloodshed that happened, the blood that was soaking in the soil of all those thousands and thousands and thousands of people being slaughtered, right? When the settlers came, we just read a couple of sentences. You continue on the timeline to the transatlantic slave trade. First, we've got to say the ones that made it here on the ships. Right, right. So let's start there because the sharks would follow the slave ships because they knew that they were throwing the sick people overboard to feed them. You know, so let's start there. And now we find we made it. We barely made it to America. If we're a little too sickly, you know, we'll, we'll let them die. And the ones that, are, that, that made it alive, the strongest and the healthiest are put on plantations, right? So you have, now let's go through the period of slavery and then the period of the abolitionists that want slavery abolished, white and black, right? So all of a sudden we have the civil war, slavery is abolished. Where do they go? What do they do? There's a huge swath of population in the country in this moment that want them still in bondage. And that see them still as chattel, that see them still as subhuman, that think that they are deserving of nothing more than to be on a a link of a chain and to work for them and serve for them at their pleasure, at their beckoning call. We we have those people at that time, right? So we're still on the timeline. Blacks start sharecropping. My grandmother was a child of a sharecropper, one of 13 siblings. My grandmother used to pick cotton. They had a 168-acre farm. The man that owned the seed farm and the supplies would give black people, front them the seeds and the equipment to be able to till their land. And then when they came and they, they, they picked cotton, they bailed it and they brought it to them, you know what they would tell them? According to my books, you still owe me. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll give you enough seed for next season, but you owe me, so I'm not paying you anything. You know, that ha- that happened throughout the South. Thank God my great my gr- uh, great grandfather, Papa, had these molasses trees and they sold molasses. You know what I mean? Get, get back to getting back to the point I was making. You had that era of history where there were people trying to struggle to just 
farm just to feed themselves. That was it. Farm and feed yourself and make clothes right. and live and die. That's what people right. did. Then. Right. That was it. That's the goal. Yep. And you had the migration, the great migration that's not really written in history books, the northern migration. People from Tennessee and Mississippi tended to tended to migrate to Chicago and, and, and Milwaukee. And then on the uh, further east, up towards in, into Boston. What happened in Boston during those during that uh, great migration? Race riots. You had these skilled blacks that built the South, right? That knew how to do masonry, that knew how to do carpentry, that knew how to put windows and build these beautiful homes and structures. And they would go to these places and apply for jobs. And the whites didn't like it because they could they would work for less money because they were working for no money. And so you had whites getting together and like going out and beating their heads in and killing them. You can't work here. People forget in this country. And then let's go a little bit forward in the timeline. We never talk about the fact that there was, you couldn't go into a, I couldn't go in a restaurant in the 50s and 60s. I couldn't go into a restaurant. It said no colors. I couldn't go into a restaurant. It wouldn't serve me. They had a colored water fountain and a whites only water fountain. They had dual bathrooms. People forget that. And we read it and we remember, but we got to remember that was the life of those people at that time. I remember as a kid going to Sears and Roebuck with my grandmother and dealing with white cashiers or wherever, a grocery store, a bank or wherever, and Anytime a white person would look up at my grandmother, she would subconscious, she would just lower her head. She was afraid to look white people in the eye. And I, when I became a teenager, I used to scold her about that. I understood where it was from, but I had to always talk to her about that. And by the time she took her last breath, she didn't have that in her psyche. Thank God. She, my grandmother taught me how to love. One of the most courageous human beings that I know that ever walked God's earth. So we're on this timeline where people are not wanted, right? Now we're just we're talking about in the north, in the south, they're still slaves. They're just not called slaves. They're still working for somebody for free because they have nowhere to go. They're outcasts. They're still, in essence, in bondage. Historically black colleges, Miss Black America, things like this that popped up. It wasn't because black people were like, I think we should have a black Miss Black America pageant. I think we should have an all black college and keep all the white people out. It was because they were not wanted. We don't look at people don't realize that. Where did black colleges come from? Where, where did a Miss Black Team USA? The hell is that? That's racist. Why are they being so separate? They they had to do things to hold on to the idea that they were just human beings my grandmother lived through that i my great grandmother lived until 2003 lucy may roberts 94 years old my great grandfather papa had had an experience in the south where he was he would go to town to sell his molasses and there was this white guy that hated him and he would come he would harass him and he would come to our land well before my time, and he would just do donuts and use these racial epithets towards my great-grandfather. And he told that man if he ever came on his land again, he would kill him. Uh, He felt threatened. 
And I guess one day, my grandmother told me the story. One day, the man came to the house and driving around, driving around, and my great-grandfather shot him and killed him in Mississippi in the 50s. The sheriff came out. He said, Buck, his nickname was Buck, Buck Roberts. Buck, you, you know I have to take you down to the jail. And Papa said, I'm not going to the jail. Because he knew if he would have went to the jail, the time would have came, took him out of jail, and lynched him. He said, okay. And all of my, my grandmother and all their siblings, because they were hunters, everybody got their guns, their shotguns. Everybody manned a window. My great papa sat on the porch with his rifle next to him. And my great-grandmother, Lucy May, said, they're going to come for you. He said, yeah, I know. And as he saw, as they saw the horses coming with the torches, they braced themselves. He went back in the house and they burned a cross outside of their house. And as they started approaching, everybody in my family started firing. You got 16 people, you got 13 plus two in that house uh, ready to defend it with their lives. And they left. Papa got to tell that story. My grandmother got to tell me that story. I asked her, she told me this when I was, because I would be high on drugs and coming down and I would be like talking to her because she would let me in her house. She never turned her back on me. And that came out of one of those, I kept my grandmother up all night conversations. I asked my grandmother, I said, I said, Granny, I said, you're my grandmother. And she chuckled and she said, yeah, I know, boy. And uh, <laughs> right. I said, you had a grandmother. You had a grandfather. Have you ever met your grandparents? And she said, yeah, I met my grandfather. And I was coming down from cocaine. And I said, well, how old were you when he died? My grandmother just died two years ago from dementia. This December will be two years, 87 years old. Keep that in mind for timeline perspective. She said, oh, Andre, he lived until I was 19. I said, your great-grandfather was alive when you were 19. She said, yeah. She said, her, my grandmother's nickname was Frog. She said, you know why they call me Frog? I said, no. She said, because my, my grandfather gave me that nickname, Andre. So she knew this man intimately as an 18-year-old, not when she was one or two. And I was like, wait, Granny, you were born in 31. My great-granny was born in 1902. I said, hold it. I said, what was his name? She said, Everett. I said, was he a slave? She said, yes, he was. And all the drugs left my system. And it yeah. became an interview session with me and my grandma. Oh, for sure. For sure. Because I was stuck. And I have a bill of sale for him. Yeah, he's on this slave roster. Yeah. M multiple bills of sale for multiple family members of ours. Know where they're buried. Old slave cemetery. They wouldn't allow slaves to put their names because we weren't supposed to be able to know how to read. And so they would use the symbols. You had to use symbols to put on a brick and then put a brick as a marker. But getting back to what I was talking about, this woman that I've known all my life up until two years ago, almost two years ago, knew a man that was in bondage intimately in this country, not as a little baby, but as a 19 year old woman physically. So I have a connection to somebody that physically knew somebody that was enslaved in this country. Okay, that means that anybody else that's 87 and over probably knew somebody 
that was a slave. If that's the case, everybody 87 or over that's white probably knew somebody that was a slave master. Think about that. If that's the case, we're talking about the connection to the physical, Ashley. Now, take the mentality of that slave and what he would say to his children and what their children would say to their children to keep them alive. That was my grandmother. Now, let's switch over to the other side. That slave master, what he said to his children and what his children said to his children. Somebody I'm talking to today, that's their grandparents. So it's not shocking to me that it ex- racism exists in the United States of America at all. I'm optimist. I think it's dying. Not because the older people are dying. I'm going to tell you what. This is beautiful. I, I lived in Green Bay, Wisconsin for almost three years. At the time, I, I moved up there for this girl, my former girlfriend. When I moved up there in 1998, every one of the white kids that I saw from ages 12 to 18, and maybe a little older, dressing like Tupac. Oh, yeah. <laughs> tupac out. I was like, wow. Green Bay, Wisconsin is 99.9999999% white. Okay. I would, it, it blew me away. I was in my 30s and it blew me away because I knew what that meant. I said to myself, I don't give a damn who your father and your mother are or what they taught you in your household. That is no longer applicable. So it does not matter if your father was David Duke or Archie Bunker. Because I see them embracing that hip-hop culture. Those children that I saw are on the streets of America right now holding up signs. Yes, they are. That's, that's my generation. My generation, you know, I can, obviously I can't speak for the whole generation, but I'm going to try. You know, we don't really get it. Like, we don't, I can just say, like, we don't really get it. Like, we don't really get how it's possible this is still happening. Like we, we, we are so confused. I mean, I, I see it in other people. You know, my husband grew up in talk about white America. He grew up in, in, uh, outside of Houston in in a like super Christian, small suburb. My sister suburb. And yeah. And, uh, and you know, he, like, I talk to people from there. I talk to people from where I, you know, grew up on the coasts and in San Francisco, we are, absolutely confused as to how I watched that video of George Floyd, Andre, and I wanted to, I wanted to vomit. Um, I, I, I was not planning on telling my three-year-old twin boys what was going on. And I just started crying. I didn't know, like, I didn't know what I was seeing and I just started crying. And I have seen things in the past, you know, from with what's going on that it's funny you know, family members, uh, my, particularly my sister's fiance, he keeps saying, well, he keeps saying to me, Ashley, well, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. And I keep saying, I don't understand what rational human beings don't make decisions like this. They know they're being filmed. Like I said, take away whether you're a good person or a bad person. Like they know they're being filmed. They know every move they're being filmed. They know they're being, they're coming after him and they're still doing it. I said, I'm coming at this from like a rational human being perspective. They're not being rational. And if they're not being rational in front of the camera, I can only imagine what is going on and the frustration and the PTSD from 
in these jobs. You know, here's the other thing, you know, police officers, and I know this from working with first responders, police officers, and, you know, and I'll include other first responders, uniformed personnel, they have super gnarly PTSD that they do not deal with. And that is a part of the problem just as much as anything else, because they also, you know, that pressure cooker, I think that th- that these first responders are in their own pressure cooker. Well, they live in the pressure cooker. Right. The cops live in the pressure cooker for the right. eight hours or the 12 hours. Right. So they, right. they, they are experiencing it as well. And then yeah. they go and outside they, no the tool. cooker and they yeah. have to deal with a whole nother dichotomy. It's insane. It's, it's, I, it is, you know, it's, we've created this, this perfect storm, if you will. And, but it is, you know, I will say, I appreciate your, your explanation and, and, and the history of it's super important for me to remember because it is not imaginable that I really mean this. It is not imaginable to me that that stuff happened like not that long. When we talk about how, like when I've looked at like how long, you know, since this or how long has it been since when they forcibly desegregated schools? And then you look at that timeline and you look at my brain does not understand because to me, to me growing up in where I, you know, my life, you know, I, I it doesn't, I'm not colorblind. I don't know what that whole saying is, but, uh, but I, I, that, that I don't, I'm like, oh, what? But I, don't understand. I actually often think, why are you devaluing yourself? That's what I think to myself. Like, you know, and, and you said why, because how could you not, if you're, if you, if the world treats you that way, then, then how, no, you would have to adapt. And in order to adapt, you'd have to figure out a way to live in that environment. And it's just unimaginable. I think that education piece and the conversation, you know, one thing, I struggle with, I will say this, I will say that the part with the Black Lives Matter that I'm really struggling with is that I feel like I'm not allowed to say anything or ask any questions. I feel like I, like I post, my best friend is, my best friend's grandfather is Charles Mingus. And uh, he's the famous black jazz player. If you you look him up, you'll, you'll, you'll know who he is. And I, I, I was checking in, you know, someone said, oh, that, that post is racist or whatever. And I said to her, like, is this right? Am I, you know, is this, or she says, no, Ashley, it's not. And, and I feel like as a person, when you're not a person of color, but you want to support, it feels like we can't have a conversation because it's I'm going to, so I'm going to say something wrong. It's so uncomfortable. Yeah. But, but here's yeah. the thing. One thing we know about being in recovery is that we have to walk through our uncomfortability in order to get through the others to the other side. The growth that one experiences when you confront your uncomfortability is exponential, right? So, so we have to be willing. It's uncomfortable for, for me to talk to white people about this kind of stuff, but I've yeah, done it yeah. hundreds of times. Because Do you ever get pushback? Have you ever, has it ever been bad, like the response? Uh, I, I wouldn't categorize it as pushback. I would categorize it as a different perspective or opinion and which leaves, as long as they're willing to engage in conversation, which leaves the door open for them to change their perception or their perspective and, and, and see things from my point of view. Now, I've had conversations with people and I can tell that they were not hearing it. 
Right, right, right. But also, <laughs> they were not hearing it or pretending to not hear it because I know a day later or two days later, it was just ego and they would be like, they would replay what went on right, in right, their right. heads and they would be more amicable to what I was saying. But sometimes people just, our pride and our egos are um, our enemies. Yeah. And, you had a, you had an experience with a Nazi that was uh, yeah. in, in that Dustin. related to your recovery. His name was Dustin. I was at Dustin. Acton, this rehab in Acton, California on this old, uh, old corn tuberculosis quarantine base slash used to be a base and it used to be a, a Japanese internment camp. Oh, that's where your rehab was. That's where the rehab was a little small little barracks, six people in the barracks. I think it was a, there was a couple of Hispanic guys, uh, a couple other black guys, me, and then there's this white guy, Dustin. No, there's another white guy in there too. Can't remember his name. I only remember Dustin's name. I don't remember anybody else's name yeah, yeah. in that yeah. little shack. And every time I would come in, Dustin would be out of there like so fast. Within half a second, he was on his way out the door. The only time he would show up was when... We had to have the, you know, rehab bed count. Um, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I would never see him or bedtime. And he would like quickly shut off the light. He wouldn't come in until the light was shut off. And that was, you know, we never communicate. And so one day I was walking out the door. His bed was by the door. And he had this poster of this woman. And she had all this black leather on. I was like, you know, I was like, ooh, woman, black leather. Let me check this out. And I'm getting closer to it. And I squint my eyes, Ashley. And I noticed that she has a, a Nazi armband on. He had take, cut this out of a map. It was a whole page of a magazine, this chick posing with this Nazi armband, the black, the red, the red band with the, the, with the uh, white, the black swastika. And I said, oh, and I, so I said to myself, oh, he's going to talk to me. Like, <laughs> we're going to have a conversation it. now. Oh yeah. Right. Oh yeah. And so you're not getting out of this. Right, Cause like there I'm from Wisconsin. I've never seen a skinhead in my life. I did on like uh Geraldo, <laughs> you know, <laughs> back in the day, I've never seen the one face to face, one face to face. Like they're like some kind of a alien. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I was like, and he had the shaved head. I was like, Oh, okay. So he came in. I said, you know, I, converse, I started a conversation. I said, Dustin, uh, cause I knew his name. I was checking out the chick. I said, did you know she had a swastika on her arm? And he tightened up so, like, he seized up like an old engine. You could see every muscle in his body just wrench like, because he probably didn't know how I was going to respond. Right. I would, I would, I would too. For the response. So I'm sure the typical response is probably two guys flailing around the ground throwing punches. And I pissed totally. myself because I saw him tense up because I was like, yeah, uh oh, here we go. And I said, are you like that? I think those were my exact words, Ashley. Are you like that? And he went on to tell me how his grandfather indoctrinated him into Nazi culture. So he was bred to be a Nazi by his grandfather. And he actually sat down and broke it down to me. And what he meant, what it meant to him. And how he saw it and how he wasn't really, he didn't really like, not like me, one of the mud people. Cause you know, you know, you know cause they have all this stuff. Cause you know, you know I've oh done research God. before this and I just love yeah, yeah. knowing stuff. And so we start talking and every, anytime there was nobody in the barracks, 
and yeah, it was yeah. he and I, he would talk to me. But if the door opened, he would he would cut it off and he would turn his back and he'd act. And I could be in the mid-sentence and he would, would not respond to me. He would not let other people see me talk to him. Wow. Fast forward. I got the hint. And so I would stop talking when people can't. Yeah. Because I, because <laughs> right. I've experienced this on other levels, not as this thick and intense as this uh, confrontation that turned into just conversation, which turned into family day at the rehab where the family members come. I'm somewhere. He finds me in the compound at the rehab. He says, Andre, I go, what's up? He goes, my grandfather's here. My grandmother's here. My mother's here. My father's here. And it was either a cousin or a nephew or somebody else. I said, oh, and like my heart, I got butterflies because I was like, ooh, the whole hate <laughs> like, tribe. Oh, the no- yeah, right. You know, the Nazi they, family's you know, here. They, they jackbooted on in here. And you know, how do they march in? And, you know, oh, God. Like the Nazis, yes. I was like the Reichstag <laughs> is here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like, whoa. I was trying to picture how were they interacting yeah, yeah. with all these different cultures that were walking past them, putting their trays. You're waiting for Hitler himself yeah. to show up. Because the kids in the cafeteria, they're all in the cafeteria because they get the free meal and then they can walk around with the family members to and tour the huge sprawling facility, the grounds. And he goes, all of a sudden he goes, I want to introduce you to them. And that, my heart, I don't know, but okay, my heart sank and really sank that time. And I said, okay. <laughs> I went into this zone. Like it was very yeah, yeah, surreal. Yeah. Started yeah. walking. I was behind him. We walk into the cafeteria. I look to the right. And I know it's them. <laughs> right? So he's walking in front of me. Right. He apparently knows. They, they already know that he's already told them, I'm introducing you to my black friend, Andre. I walk in there and he goes, this is Andre. Everybody's got their head down. Nobody looks up. Oh my God. The gra- he doesn't look up. None of them. They, oh look, they look straight at the table. They have nothing oh to God. say. They don't respond. They don't look up. All they do is breathe. He yells out some rants. He curses a little bit. He starts walking away. I'm standing there. And I'm like, I better follow him. <laughs> Because this could really get ugly. <laughs> and uh, as we're walking out, we go out the door and make a left. His mother comes out. I hear the footsteps running fast. So I'm turning around. I'm like bracing myself. And I'm ready like, what's, to go. What's happening? Yeah. Like, you know, and she runs over and I say, Dustin. And she, he turns around because I don't, you know, it's female running and I don't, please stop her because I don't know what she's about to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And, uh, yeah. And she says, excuse me. She said, can I shake your hand? And I said, sure. And she says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Twice. So we walk back and I'm calming him down. He's cursing his family out and we're sitting down. We get past that day. He doesn't go back. They leave. Fast forward to Andre wants to get high in the rehab. I got to leave, but I'm in Acton, California. I'm trying to get to LA. I've already made the phone calls, get money wired like us addicts do. It's sitting at Western Money's sitting at Western Union waiting for me. 
<laughs> I just gotta get to LA. Then. Good old if Western LA, Union. Oh, right. You know that feeling. Right. Oh, I do. And there's a staff member that's driving to LA, and I'm like, fifty bucks, because I'm leaving. So, yep. You know, and he he agrees. This is a done deal. And so I go. You know, us alcoholics and drug addicts, we don't just you know pack our stuff and silently and quietly sneak out of rehab. No. We, we uh, loudly profess to everybody in earshot that we're leaving and we hate this place. I don't know how you can stay here. We make this big, huge, dramatic scene because secretly we want everybody to tie us down and make us stay. Because we already know that as soon as we walk out the door, the train it's is done. about to derail. As soon as we walk out the door, we already know because that's why we're oh, leaving. We, let's yep. not kid ourselves. So I do my dra- drama. I do my dramatic uh Oscar winning performance. Yes, for sure. Dustin walks in there. What's going on? Man, I do the whole thing all over again. I think I did better the second take. You know, <laughs> a more, bigger audience. I have one more in the audience. So I did it. I, it was more grand, right? And uh, Dustin's like, what? Don't leave. And Dustin begged me to stay. Kept begging me. Tears start rolling down his face. Begging me to stay. Don't leave. Please, you're my friend. He started sobbing like a baby on his bed. Andre, please, you're my friend. Don't leave. People can change one heart at a time, one soul at a time. Do you still talk to him? I left him, got high. But I imagine that that conversation that, and that, more importantly, that night changed something in him. I picture him successfully completed. He could, he successfully completed rehab, read his family, the riot riot act multiple hundreds of times, distanced himself from those that wouldn't change their ilk. Maybe still goes to family reunions and reads them the riot act again. Some of his family members, maybe he brought them on. Maybe he changed some of their hearts. Yeah. That's how I see Dustin. I never saw him again, but that experience at that rehab time I was there, the only person I ever think about when I think about my experience at that rehab is Dustin. I don't think of any other faces there. I only see Dustin because God put me there to talk to Dustin. I wasn't ready to get sober. I was ready to talk to Dustin. I'm always ready to talk to Dustin. Anytime I encounter Dustin, I'm always ready to talk. And I, I'm not swayed by their preconceived notions of how they think the world is or who they think they are, because I know people can change, Ashley. And I know it just takes a hand. So I don't get wound up in the emotionality of this thing that's happening because I can't operate on a rational and logical level with you if I'm too emotional about it. If I get my feelings wrapped up in it, I might offend you. And if I offend you, you cut it short. The end. I can't get through to you. So if I talk to you rationally with some sense, interject a little history, maybe a little humor, a little heartache and pain, and tell you how the other side can look, then maybe you might consider it, not in that moment, but the next day or the next day. We recover. See, that's recovery. He recovered. 
a piece of himself that he didn't even know he had lost because he was raised that way. We talked about George Floyd earlier. I believe in God. God works in everything. I started thinking about that about a week and a half ago after George Floyd was murdered. I started thinking about it a week into the quarantine. Then I started thinking about it in relations to George Floyd and the quarantine. And this is my perspective because I believe in God. God was like, okay, I need everybody's attention. (laughs) Anybody listen? No, nobody's listening. I need every, nobody's listening. I'm trying to say this and nobody, okay. Everybody sit the hell down. Not America, not France, not London, not India. I want the entire world to sit the hell down right now. I've got to show you something. All right. Everybody's chill. Good. Sit for a while longer. I need you a little anxious. I don't want you comfortable. I want you a little emotional. I don't want you irate. Everybody cool. You ready? George Floyd, you're my lamb. Be what lambs be. Get sacrificed. The, his daughter stood on the, sat on the Jack, Stephen Jackson's shoulders, the dude, NBA player. He's holding her in her braids, two little braids. And she said, it's showing CNN every once in a while. My daddy changed the world. This is not about black folks. This is not about police brutality. This is about humanity. This is tapped into humanity. This is tapped into every soul on the face of the earth. And God made sure that everybody could listen because he told everybody to sit the hell down. Be still because I want you to be able to have time to see what I'm trying to show you. I want you to be able to have time to process it. And then I want you to be able to have time to respond to it accordingly. So I can't look at it as something evil as I want to. Emotionally, I want to see it as something evil, despicable, vile, disgusting. But if I tie it all together, I say, my God is a show off. COVID-19. 2020, London, France, Japan, Australia, South Africa, Rome, Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, Italy, Germany. Look at us. Look at us. You and I right now, right here, right now, talking about this moment because it's that great. It's that big. This is not something that's going to cease. We already know that it's taken on this form that we can't describe. The only thing we do know is we don't know what it's going to look on the, not, I want to say at the end, we don't know how it's going to look in its totality because it's going to morph. And our job as human beings is to search out and find our lanes, no gas, All gas, no brakes. Find your lane. All gas, no brakes. Get in your lane and push. Whatever it is, it can be as simple as saying hi to somebody that does not look like you each and every day. It can be that simple. It can be as grand as creating a nonprofit 
that you assist in the training of people to be entrepreneurs. It can be going and buying some school supplies and dropping them off. It can be saying, hey, excuse me, sir, I want to take your class on a field trip uh, to a, a laboratory to learn about something, some, something science related or to a studio for your art students so they understand the inner workings and behind the camera and how what it takes to do a podcast or what it takes to do a movie or what it takes to do a commercial. I want to take you to, uh, to be a, a spectator to show you a doctor giving surgery. Maybe a child goes, oh, my goodness, I would like to do that. Oh, I want to help. I want to help animals get better. I love horses. I want to I want to be a veterinarian. This moves me to my core. Economic empowerment is the main thing that is going to change things. What I mean by economic empowerment is not divvying out dollars to anybody that's got their hands out. What I mean is finding people that have ideas to create wealth, to create jobs, not to create jobs, because there's people out here, me included, that have ideas on how to create jobs for people in their neighborhoods. We need to tap into those people and to give them resources so that they can empower people, right? Because the reality is, is that people have been disenfranchised. See, when there's a bunch of home renters and apartment renters in an area that don't have as many property taxes as a suburb that has all these single family homes, where you have professional men and women living, or they have a band and they have dance class and they have computers in every school and every room and every child has a computer. They already started the race, right? These other kids are still at the starting line, right? Now they have two parent households helping them with their homework because they don't have to worry about, well, there's always a parent home because they don't have to be that single parent that's, working one or two jobs, maybe three. Okay, run 200 more yards. They're still at the starting line. Lower aces. Lower, lower aces. Lower. Traumatic things happening to you. Seeing tra- trauma, hearing about the trauma. What is going to be the catalyst of for this is economic empowerment. When things started happening back after the Rodney King incident, you know what happened? A lot of money went to a lot of recreational facilities around the country trying to get kids involved. With, kids are already involved with sport. You don't, get to get, you don't have to show a kid sport. Kids love sports. Kids love running around and moving around. It's about economic empowerment. If you don't create the circumstances by which people can create wealth, livings for themselves we're, we're spinning we're spinning in a gerbil's cage right there's maslow's hierarchy of needs right so you know people it's kind of like what they talk about with the homeless population which is about you know looking at the needs like people are trying to get 
you know, I'm, they're trying to get homeless people sober before they give them housing so that they have to stay, you know, like which comes first. And that when people don't have the basic needs, like, or their basic needs are constantly threatened, right? Maybe they have it at this moment, but it's not stable. It, that all other things fall behind. And, and one of the biggest things that I saw when studying this stuff was actually came down to nutrition, which I thought was interesting. It came down to nutrition in uh, these communities where they called, you know, food deserts, where they basically didn't have access to those things. So, and I don't even mean just like fruits and vegetables, although I do mean that, but I mean like enough nutrition for the brain to be powered to even absorb the information that is happening at school. Kids are are hungry and then they're fed foods that don't power their brains. And so even if you were today to take all of the money and to increase the quality of the education, if you don't address the fact that they're tired not sleeping enough, they don't have the right food, they don't have enough food, you know, that nutritionally all the, you know, you need the engine, you need, the, you you get an oil change, right? A, like you get all a the friend oil. of mine, a friend of mine is a yogi. He used to play a play, professional football player and blew his knee out and he got into yoga. Black guy. He does workshops where he's trying to get yoga and he's also vegan and nutrition in under underserviced neighborhoods every few months he does a workshop and he invites people to come out and he has all these vegan vendors and he does he does yoga workshops and sound bath and he does this in south central every few months but that's an example of somebody that needs to be supported And, and and that that program that he does needs to be morphed into something that moves around nationwide things like meditation nutrition it needs to be implemented immediately because you're absolutely right. That is but even even stuff. even meditation, even meditation, right? If I'm teaching you, med- like I'll give you an example. If my, you know, I have three year old twin boys, and if I give them a donut and then try to get them to meditate or the equivalent of a donut, you know what we what we are what we don't talk about. And you're you're a personal trainer, so this I'm I'm preaching in the choir. So what we don't talk about is that you know, especially for drug addicts and alcoholics. So like, we're we're special yeah, we're our own special category of everything. But, and I see it in my kids. I am going to get, so whenever I'll give you an example on the weekends, we do not let the kids leave the house to go. Cause every, we do something active every Saturday and Sunday morning, we go somewhere. They do not leave the house without having uh, some sort of protein breakfast because otherwise I want to drop them off at a fire station, <laughs> right? Like I don't, I'm like, I, I, I can't stand being around them because, <laughs> because their, per, the, their personalities and mine are directly correlated to the amount of fuel in the tank. Wow. Right. And so I, same thing, like my husband will sometimes take them to get a snack, you know, a treat, whatever, which is like, you know, sh- shot of sugar somewhere. And that take them to get a treat. They do, you know, workbooks and like school type stuff. I don't do that stuff with them after they've had something full of sugar because there's no point. And so, and when I sat, I went to UCLA and, and studied public policy. And I remember we studied food desert and we studied like the, how many liquor stores were in a certain area. I had no idea how many liquor. So, so people 
the distance between they was more likely to pick up food at a gro- at a liquor store that had food, right? That's where people were getting their nutrition. And then you throw that, throw those kids experiencing ACEs, pressure cooker stress, and then you don't give them the fuel for the tank so they can't even get out. You know, you're talking about and make rational decisions. You can't get out. You're talking about lane and, you know, get in your lane and fuel the tank, right? You can be in the right lane. You can have, you know, you can all those things, but if you're not given, if you're, you know, biology, if you feel like shit every day and your life is tough, how is that helping? And and so I always find it interesting. I mean, I know there's been, you know, Michelle Obama's done a bunch of stuff around this and I know there's been talk about it, but, you know, sometimes I think to myself, you know, we're talking about, we're, you know, we're talking about defunding the police and we're talking about, you know, different things. Like, we have to take, you know, kind of like program, we have to bring it back to basics, basics. This has to go back to this. You, you can't look at, for me, I can't look at a community where this stuff is happening and not think to myself, you know, down to prenatal care, you know, like down to nutrition, down to the very basics, because that those hierarchy of needs, those are not things that come up in the wealthy. Those those are things that are not addressed at all. They are addressed on some levels, but not enough. I agree with you. Absolutely. Not, not enough, not enough to get large groups of people out. Because nobody's, nobody's pushing the message that it correlates I believe if we educate people and show the correlation between diet and functionality and keep pushing that message, it will get through to people. But it's only done, it's done piecemeal. You know what I mean? There's certain messages that are done piecemeal, unfortunately. And like we as a society are to blame for that. Uh, Collective, only thing that happen in the society are things that happen collectively. Like what's happening with George Floyd, it's collective. So what we need to do is we need to come up with strategies of what we want to tackle coming out of this thing. But but Andre, question for you. So let's say I want to take on and I want to help and I want to be a, a contributing member. My experience has been that when I bring my privilege into those communities, they're like, that's nice, sweetheart. Like they're that I, they don't want me there because the feeling is adversarial because the feeling is, and, and I'm wondering like, and it's almost, I, the feeling I get is it's almost like they think I pity. Well, like I'm there. The for thing me. is, so if you and I were going to Russia to counsel people on recovery, Russian drug addicts, and they didn't speak English, what would we have to do? We have to get an interpreter, right? So, if that's the case, until there's some comfortability, because remember, the adversarial attitude comes from externally, I'm in the pressure cooker, so anything outside of me of, of the bubble, I view as a threat. Then, and it's reasonable. So the solution to that problem is to get interpreters. What I mean by that is to find some connectivity with People that live in the pressure cookers, because there are people there that are trying to do the work, but they're grossly underfunded. There's enough people out there willing to take up the mantle of implementing things. They just don't 
have the resources. Always has been, and until it changes, it always will be the case. There are people out there trying, and they're, they're, and they're making progress, but they can't do things on a mass scale like they could if they had the resources. And so I, I totally get what you're saying, but I think it's our job to reach out and find those people. Because like me, for instance, I have a lot of white friends. I have a lot of black friends. I grew up in the hood. I don't live in the hood anymore. However, I totally relate to the experience. Like if I, if I hop on Delta right now and go back to Milwaukee, like I step right into the hood and they everybody knows Dre and I'm like right there with everybody and whatever everybody's doing, as long as it's safe and lawful, I'm with it because that's where I grew up, right? So Andre going back to Milwaukee to assist in implementing something in Milwaukee is doable. Andre going to South Central to try to implement something out in South Central is doable because I can communicate with people that are wanting to implement things and people that are implementing the things. So my, my experience and my background in having the experiences of living in this quote unquote pressure cooker bubble and also living outside of it and going and playing tennis tournaments and going and, and, and playing at country clubs and traveling with people that most kids from the hood don't do other than like somebody that's like a pro athlete or a rapper or somebody that became an engineer or a doctor that got out. Cause I'm just your average drill, but I've had above average experiences. So I'm actually a person totally fit to be able to do something like that. And there, I'm not the only one. I know other people that fit that bill. So our objective is to connect with me and those others and say, okay, let's all sit together. Now, how can I help you? Yeah. Further yeah. Well, let's all, we all help yeah. each other. And then we go out and we do, and we go out and we do the advocacy, right? And we go out and we, and we find people, but initially we have to get into a planning stage of sitting down and going, okay, we understand Andre, you're going to, you're, you're not running this thing, but we know that you're going to be the face of it because out of necessity, if you're not, Gonna, there's going to be some skepticism because all you have to do is look back at the Tuskegee experiment when the United States government was like infecting people with syphilis. Like, you know what I'm saying? That's like insane that they would do like, and that's, and, and so it's out. It's like movie. Time. Yeah. Like it's, it's, I mean, it's something I don't believe it. It's just. So, so you have to have somebody that they really believe that they really can trust that can speak their language. Right. Because. Otherwise, it's going to be like, what, what's the angle? What is the angle? Especially nowadays, people are so, the information age has created skeptics out of all of us now, unfortunately. You know what I mean? We, we, we're like, mm, I don't know. I don't, do I trust that information? You know what I mean? And, and, and that's, but that's okay. That's okay. The focus, though, should be, again, creating strategies and implementing them and finding people to implement them. Because if we don't, nothing's going to change. Because we have enough messengers out there laying foundation and groundwork and, and speaking about change. We need people on the ground implementing it and overseeing the allocation of funds and making sure 
that money is being spent the right way. Because once again, once you start, you once you interject finances into anything, I'll give an example in the recovery community. When, when, when uh, the speculation for like how much money was going to be made from out of the recovery community, all of a sudden you had all these venture capitalists over the last several years coming in and just throwing money and not knowing that a lot of the people that they threw this money at, they were just trying to grab it. They weren't, they, they weren't in the business of like saving lives. They were in the business of like filling these beds up, right? Prime example. So you got to be aware. So, and, and, that also comes with uh, having somebody that knows the people that can sift through the BS. If otherwise, people will be like, oh, my God, thank God we got this guy. He is doing it. And all the while, you're putting in suitcases of money through the front door, and he's taking half of the suitcase of money, taking it out the back door. You know what I mean? So you have to be very careful on how you allocate resources and have people that are trustworthy, that really mean to affect change, go out there and do the work. And a lot, a lot of people are a lot, a lot of people are uh, set for that. Not a lot of people have the heart for it. Not, not a lot of people have the metal for it. Not a lot of people have the fortitude for it. That goes with where your lane is. Find it. Get in it. All gas, no brakes. You know what I'm saying? That's for everybody to find their lane. And onward and upward. Damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I learned that from this old guy named Billy. He was a counselor at this rehab that I left AMA. He was like, damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead. And I always remember that <laughs> when I get scared. Because, you know, we get in fear. We're in recovery. We, we walk through fears if we're uh, fortunate enough to overcome things. And so when, when fear comes up, I'm like, damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead. You know what I mean? Full steam Have ahead. Keep That's ready. great. Yeah. And so and it's it true. starts somewhere. It starts here. It starts with when people listen to this podcast, hopefully they'll hear, have heard something that they go, I, I could do that. I could do that. I could assist in that. Or they get on the phones and start going, hey, how can I help? I, this is what I'm good at. This is what I can bring to the table. Do you need me to do this? No, but I know somebody that does. You know what I mean? Why can't we have a, pro, a mentoring program where you have – Go out and just find all the, get the kids together and young adults and say, what are you good at? What do you like to do? What do you want to do? And find somebody that's done it, that's been successful at it, and that's semi-retired or retired and say, do you want to teach this kid how to do this? Because you don't have to be in a college dormitory sitting and listening to a professor to learn something from somebody. We have to break the mold of the, like somebody sitting in the classroom learning something. I'd much rather get uh, be under the tutelage of a CEO than go get an MBA from a university. You know what I mean? Because he's going to teach me based on experience, right? As opposed to what I'm reading from a textbook or from a study, right? Right. And so I, I think we like have doing to be really fluid and uh, open-minded on how we tackle things. And that entails finding the right people to spearhead it. Things like this, because if you don't, it's going to dwindle. It's going to die down. People are going to start pointing fingers. All of a sudden, the first audit, internal audit comes, and all of a sudden, like, what the hell is going on? You know what I'm saying? And then the tents yeah. fold, and guess who loses? The people that it was supposed to help. Then they're just hanging, yeah, flapping in the wind. And then you, and then you, you reinforce the message. Yeah, they're not trust. 
external threat, you know? Yep. Yep. So I would be remiss if I did not ask you so and mention, so you grew up in Milwaukee and today you live in Beverly Hills and I would be remiss if I did not ask you about being a person of color in recovery, in recovery communities. That's a Beverly Hills, West Hollywood. And sometimes I go to Malibu to meetings. That's an incredible question. Felt awkward going to my first meeting, scared to death. I remember walking in two steps in and standing there frozen. Never forget it. I had to abstain from drugs and alcohol for six months before I, ventured into one of those anonymous programs because of the fact that it was predominantly white or because of the fact that getting sober is terrifying. (laughs) Getting sober is terrifying. And I was losing my mind and I was like, I got to do something. And I ended up at a meeting and I remember this girl came up to me and she looked at me and she goes, hi, what's your name? How are you? Two questions. Right. And I looked at her and my mind said, that's too, too many questions. Like, who are you? Like, I was scared. And she, she could tell I was new. She said, come on, come have a seat. And I sat down. Had I not accepted her invitation to sit down, more importantly, had she not walked up to me and saw the deer in the headlights, we maybe wouldn't be having this conversation. I've had some experiences where people have said things that they weren't even aware of that were racist. And I did not correct them. Sometimes I have corrected people. Sometimes I leave people to their own ignorance and remind myself that problems have a way of taking care of themselves. People tend to come to me for the quote unquote black view of things sometimes. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, I'm not <laughs> hey, we, you got to get what you get. Now. I'm not the spokesperson for black America. I can give America's perspective, <laughs> but I can't give America, black America's perspective. But I get that. That's all good intention. And so in that respect, I also realized that I'm also an ambassador. I know that I'm a fairly well-known guy in the community. And I know that people look at me not as Andre, the black dude, not just Andre in recovery, but they kind of look at me as somebody like that kind of, if sometimes if there's a problem with some kid and he's newer and he's black, they come to me. And, and I'm like, I get offended the opportunity. My emotions, get, I get offended initially. But then I'm like, oh, really? yeah, because then I'm like, I, I understand. I get it. You want somebody that looks like him, that can relate with him, because you know my story. That goes to what we were talking about earlier with having somebody be the ambassador, the translator that does know Russian to go in to assist in implementing things. So my experience has been for the most part, healthy, educational, and welcoming. Sometimes uh, some subtle, I notice subtle sarcasm, but it's all in jest. Sometimes people jokingly say things to me that I don't think they mean any harm by, but sometimes I can see how if they said somebody else. Like, like what? Somebody might say something about basketball to me, like that, like, like, Right. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with, you know what I'm saying? They're just something like that's stereotypically black. You know what I'm saying? People, people sometimes, people right, have, right, right. you know, will attach stereotypes to me and chuckle about it. And, and, right, and right. you know, okay. sometimes I give them that look and they give me the, I didn't mean anything by it. 
Right. And then I say, well, why don't you repeat it and think about it? Sometimes I say something. Sometimes I don't. You know, it all depends on the situation, what mood I'm in. And But I'm mindful because I can't – what I don't ever portray or want to portray is like angry black man. <laughs> right, I mean? right. So I'm, right, I'm right, very right, mindful right. of that. And I'm also very mindful that words are very powerful. And so I, I, I try to use my words carefully. I don't I butcher the English language sometimes, but I have an okay vocabulary. So I, I, I make sure that when I have an audience and I make sure that when I'm communicating with an audience that I am an ambassador, well aware of it and, and try to be, do, be better and do better by myself because I know sometimes I do feel that weight of yeah yeah I'm sure you do I'm yeah, sure and so I'm, I'm, particularly where you live right and I'm, I'm conscious of it and and I and, and it's kind of a mantle that I accept and I'm okay with because I know I have a good heart right and so I, I know that I, I wouldn't do or say anything detrimental to somebody as it relates to their recovery or them as a person or hurtful and so I'm okay with myself, so I know that my interactions with others are going to be above board. So I, I don't like necessarily. I'm like worried about what I say because I'm just going to be me. I'm Andre. I'm always Andre. When I step out of the house, I'm Andre. You know, and whoever that, however people perceive me is how they perceive me. But I'm always going to be me. You know what I mean? Do you think that it's harder to get harder to get sober as a person of color in twelve step? The taboo of uh, drugs and alcohol and mental health in minority communities is real. It's real in the black community. It's real in the Orthodox Jewish community. It's real in the Spanish speaking community. It's very real, right? Uh, It's very taboo. Just like homosexuality is taboo in in, in black culture. You know what I'm saying? I I drive through West Hollywood and I see the Black Lives Matter uh, logo that's been prevalent, that's been shown lately. And in, in the on this window in West Hollywood in the rainbow, and, and I was like, "Wow!" Yeah, yeah. And I see Black Lives Matter stuff all up and down West Hollywood on Santa Monica Boulevard, and I'm like, "Black folks don't even know this." As a matter of fact, I just realized I'm gonna go and make me a little short video, and I'm gonna put it online, and let Black folks know, all my friends back home, and all my friends, Facebook friends, let them know what the LGBTQ community thinks about what we're going through, because they need to know that. Black people need to know that during the civil rights movement, they have their Jews died for black people too during the civil rights movement, right? Help bail people out of jail, civil rights pioneers when they went to jail, put their resources into the solution, prime example. And see, they don't know that. So that you have these young blacks growing up and black adults uh, today uh, with these anti-Semitic views because they don't know the history of blacks and Jews in this country. Like Jews have done so much for blacks and, and these kids don't know it and these adults don't know it. And they spew this rhetoric that they've heard and they parrot things. It's just like just like well, what racist white people have heard. I, I've heard black people say this stuff and I, just, I correct. I, I'm one to correct. When, when, when black people that I know start spewing anything that's related, remotely racist, I correct them immediately. I have to. And I'll talk to them afterwards if they get huffy about it because I know it's necessary. It's that important to me because I've been around too many good people. 
And I've had too many experiences to pretend that all of a white America is against me. It's ridiculous. Right. Because it's not true. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. If I look back on all the opportunities I've had in my life, the vast majority of them have been given to me by people that don't look like me. There's that. Yeah. That's interesting. And so I'm, I'm, I'm mindful uh, of my surroundings. I, people look at me. I can sense anxiety, for instance, in people. I'm very aware. I, I read body language. And, and I look at things like that as that's their thing. That's their stuff. My stuff. Right. I don't carry other people's stuff. I'm a free man today. Yep. You know what I mean? I've been sober coming up on eight years. And I'm engaged with a beautiful woman who uh, yes, is like a role model to me. She owns her own company. Her and Lauren Abario, Patty and Lauren own Connections Recovery. They, I, I, I know the work they do. I listen to them and I listen to the work that Connection Recovery does and how they help people and how and their integrity rubs off on me. How they, tra- how, how, how they conduct themselves in the business world in comparison to other people I've seen conduct themselves in the business world and how they'll turn away a dollar if it's not ethical, if somebody needs a higher level of care, even though the pe- the family has a black card, they'll tell them, "We're sorry, your family member needs a higher level of care. We can't we can't help them yet." You know what I mean? So I have role models. I have uh, uh, it, when Patty and I got together, I immediately got this family. All her sponsors, oh yeah, successful <laughs> yeah. women that are business owners, and like so, I, I have this huge family of these successful people, a lot of successful women that are like role models for me that I can look at and get, get advice from. And none of them look like me. You know what I mean? And so we chop it up and we kick it and we all, we get together for people's birthdays, uh, uh, natal and, 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 and sobriety birthdays. And we go out and we just celebrate together. You know what I mean? And it's beautiful. 20, 25 of us together at a restaurant, loud as can be. And, you know, everybody looks different, you know? So I'm an optimist in the sense that I know that things are going to be okay. Look what God just did. Look what the show off just did. Sat everybody (laughs) down. We got, we got put in timeout big time. Timeout. Now, you ready? There you go. What are you going to do with it? And like I said, we are. I mean. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's certainly got all of our attention. It really you did. had a reaction yeah, and response yeah. to it. Yep, that's why you and I are having this conversation now, Ashley. This yep, yep, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that, and I'm great. You know, I mean, a lot of good has come out. There's has come out of it. You know, a lot of bad has come out of it too, but a lot of good has come out of it. You know, it's just kind of what you want to focus on. And but I think that you know what's interesting. To me, when, one of the things that I saw in kind of almost like a sociological experiment, so to speak, is like we have this pandemic, right? And everybody's in their house and everybody is, you know, terrified to go outside. And then you start to have people start to come out to get supplies. And there's this run on supplies, right? People are stealing cooking from each other, right? The toilet paper, the whole thing, right? And then, and like supplies are running out. So there's this whole scarcity mindset. So people, it's like, take for yourself. And then it's, if you go out and you aren't, you know, wearing a mask or if you do this, there's like the shame aspect of people. But then this thing happened, you know, this where people are shaming each other, like you're doing this. So there was a lot of animosity around resources that happened right away. And then, 
and don't go outside, stay home, all the stay home to save lives. You stay home, stay home, stay home, stay home, stay home. George Floyd is murdered. And the whole world says, I mean, it was, it's, it's kind of, it's the whole world. Now, now the pandemic did not change. Okay. Not nothing changed. Okay. Uh, no studies came out saying like, go outside or, you know, anything. So the, the, so George Floyd is murdered and people are like, screw this. I don't care that I suddenly the resources, Suddenly the, 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 you're not wearing a mask. I'm not wearing a mask. Da, 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 da. Suddenly no one, nothing, nothing is more important than this collective feeling of like, no, this is not now, not like we will not do this anymore. And, and, and the, 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 ability for a mass of people to do that in the face of a pandemic Black Lives Matter so, you know, what I would say to the Black community is Black Lives Matter so much. And I, I really, honestly, I don't like Black Lives Matter as much as, I mean, I do think Black Lives Matter is important. I like people of color because I think, I always think like, you know, there's other, you know, there's mixed race people and all sorts of people that are probably like, hey, wait a minute. But basically that, that, that this subjugation, that this discrimination is so important that we're willing to literally risk our lives, actually literally. risk our lives. That's what people do. Literally. And to go out in the face and show that we will protest, we will, you know, all over the world. People came out of their homes all over the world when they were shut in. Really a, just a remarkable testament to the fact that people do want change, that people don't want this to keep happening. And they don't want to support it. And they're willing to go outside in the middle of a pandemic and say so. Yeah, I, I think that um, that's very brave of people. But that shows you that everybody is like, enough. Yes, enough. enough. I don't care. I, I know what's happening. And in the face of that, so you can you imagine if there was something not as severe as this, excuse me, how many people would be out there? in the street. But it wouldn't have happened because everybody would be too busy with work, too busy with school. So it needed to happen this way, Ashley. Uh, the world needed to slow down for a minute because man's inhumanity to man has tipped to its breaking point. That was too much. People's souls cried out viewing that, witnessing that, feeling that. And like I said, those kids that I met back in Green Bay that are now adults. I've caught, this is this is about to say, I've talked to some of my black friends and I'm like, these young white folks, they are not having it in America. They are not having it. But point blank, bottom line, they are not having it. It is not happening. They see clearly what's happening. They cannot pretend that it's just black people out there. The information age is such that they cannot be lied to anymore. They see clearly everything that's going on. And not only that, it's happened instantaneously worldwide. Powerful. Does that, when you talk to your friends about those things, do they feel supported? Absolutely. Because, you know, the the average brother that's living in the hood, like for real in the hood, hood life, they weren't out there. 
they were too mad. Like you had black folks out there, college educated black folks and black folks that feel that they can affect change out there. So there's a lot of black people in the inner cities of this country that feel a sense of pride and feel a sense of validation and feel a sense of belonging and feel like they have been elevated to normalcy almost. So because of that fact, it's our job to make that creativity both ways, two-way street, right? So it's now our job, because keep in mind, they're in this pressure cooker and they're viewing everything as a threat still. So now that they feel like somebody knows their trouble and their plight, somebody needs to go and let them know face-to-face that we really do understand. Yes, they see it on CNN. Yes, they see it on MSNBC News. And and they actually see it on Fox, too. (laughs) (laughs) They do now. (laughs) We've infiltrated. (laughs) Hannity. (laughs) I watch them just so I know. I have to. I watch them so I got... I have to watch it. I want to know. Tucker, I see you, Tucker. Oh, <laughs> God, Tucker. Um, Good Lord. Uh, um, but see, now we, we, have to, we have to take that extra step. Like, it's our responsibility to reach out and, and connect, right? It really is. The onus is not on them. Because you're talking, have you ever, like, I've seen uh, footage of people going out and rescuing uh, pets from, and they're shaking and they're scared. They're traumatized. So imagine going to a a sex trafficking ring and you and, and this house and you got all these youngsters in there and they're traumatized, shaking, and they hear the doors being kicked in. All they know is like the doors are being kicked in. They don't know what's coming. They don't know what's coming. And suddenly somebody comes in and they say, "Relax, it's okay." And hold up. You might, they might not even speak English, so they don't even know what you mean by relax. But you come at them with a gentle hand and a smile, and they look, and they're like, and you reach your hand out to them, and they realize you're not beating them down with your hand, but you're reaching your hand out to them, literally, not figuratively, literally. And they reach their hand back, and you lift them up, and you guide them out of that house, out of that pressure cooker. How do you do that? You empower them. You have to show them that they have some worth. Think about the traumatized. The person in the sex trafficking room, the alcoholic newly sober, self-worth, then the tank. In the tank, yeah. So we have to rebuild them. We have to deprogram them. We have to, they've been desensitized to violence. They're traumatized. I was traumatized. I didn't realize it until I started a few years after a few years sober. I started realizing, like, there's some things about me that just like, you know, I hear loud sounds. People hear loud sounds. They have certain reactions and get scared. I hear loud sounds. I look around to see which way I have to run. So I know which way to run from the gunfire. I don't get freaked out. I look immediately. I look for like, I'm looking for the dude pointing the gun, right? I don't go, oh, my God. I'm like, I'm not ducking down. I'm looking to see where he is because I want to know which direction I have to run. And I realize that's a direct result result 
of being in those kinds of situations of fleeing from my life because I've had experiences where guns were drawn on me. I've had experiences where people unloaded the let loose on me, pulled the trigger on a firearm on me and I had to run. So like the hood experience, quote unquote, I've had those experience, all those experiences. Like, so I know what it looks like and what it feels like to feel like your life is about to end and not just by a gang member, by law enforcement. I know what it feels like when law enforcement says, get out of that car, nigger, right? I know how that feels. Not, can you please step out of the vehicle? Hand here, ready. Just please, please do something. Please, so I can put a couple slugs in. Please just do something. Sneeze too loud. I know that feeling. I know that feeling. That's terrifying. Me getting pulled over, t- shaking. Like, I, I, today, not shaking so much. Because I, I know my rights, and I don't care what, I can, I watch their, I watch their walk to the car. So I know what kind of attitude I'm dealing with, if there is one, because not all officers are bad. But when I see the attitude, I just, you know, we have a conversation. I know my rights. I know I don't, as I say, excuse me, what's your name, officer? Why am I being pulled over? You don't give me a reason. I don't even give my, I don't have to give you, I don't have to identify myself. No crimes being committed. I don't even have to identify myself. People don't even know that. Excuse me. Am I being detained? So why did you pull me over? Well, I saw, was that a crime? Then why did you pull me over? Am I being detained? No, you can't have my ID. What's your sh- call your shift commander. You know, I've had to have conversations with that and inside scared, but I, yeah, I still do it today. I do it because, because I stand for something today. I stand for something today. Hell yeah. I get scared if I get pulled over. But I, I can't, I, I'm, I, I refuse to cower now. Like, because they see that too. They'll play on that. And you, like you said, there's officers that suffer from PTSD too. And they, they view me as a threat. There's officers that view me as a threat. I'm a threat to them by how I look. You know, that's scary. But I, I walk through that fear. I have to walk through for the rest of my life, I have to walk through every fear I encounter. I don't have that option as a sober man. I don't have the option of living in fear, right? Because otherwise, I'll end up in the dope house, right? If I don't walk through my fears, no matter where they come from, I have to carry, I have to carry what I've learned with me at all times. I, I don't have the option other than to do that because anything less would create the tumultuous chatter in my mind that would lead me out. So if I put myself in a position to be disrespected or to be cowered over or to be belittled, my alcoholic brain will send me spiraling, emotionally spiral. So I don't have that. Op- I don't have that option. So I don't. I don't. I don't let them put me in that position. Right, Andre, you're amazing. I'm so deeply, deeply grateful that you were willing to have this conversation with me and let us record it so that other people could hear. I honest, I'm not just saying this because we're recording and because it would sound nice. I genuinely feel, <laughs> I mean, those things are true, but I genuinely feel like I, I got something out of talking to you and thinking about uh, the perspective of, you know, particularly with the stories about your, your grandparents and, and, 
and that effect on you, I really, that really helped me put things into perspective and think about what this means to people and, and how, how it's different. And so I'm just really, I'm really grateful. And uh, thank you so, thank you so, so much. much God bless you. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.